The richer you get, the harder it is to manage your estate. There's lots of moving parts like portfolio diversity, tax mitigation, asset protection, and estate planning. That's why the ultra wealthy use family offices, and that's where Valerity Wealth comes in for you. Run by a former sovereign wealth fund manager, Valerity Wealth brings institutional level expertise to the high paid professional. Let Valerity quarterback your finances. Book your free consultation at ValerityWealth.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Wait, hello. What's your name? My name's Cosima. Cosima? Cosima what? Cosima Joffrey. And how about, and how old are you? I'm seven. And you, what's your name? Clementine. Clementine? Clementine Joffrey? Uh-huh. And what, how old are you? Four. You're four. Okay, I'm got almost five. But almost five. Cosima, I have a question for you. What? Okay, so what is your favorite board game? Monopoly. Monopoly. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because I like to play it with you. Because you like to play it with me. And I like beating you. With and you like me. beating me. That's great. And then, uh, let's see, what other questions can I ask you? What about me? Oh, yeah, what's your favorite board game? Um, Monopoly Junior. Monopoly Junior. Very good. And why is that? Because um, we, I like to be on you. Your team, Daddy. Okay, good. All right. So one quick question for you. What do you want Daddy to teach you about money? How do the coins be made? How do coins be made? Yeah. It says it's made in, like, 2018. Yeah? On the coin. It says, like, a date. Oh, okay. Got it. All right. We'll address that in the in a future show. How about you? Camilla, you're here. You were in episode 100. This is episode 200. Okay. How old are you now? 10. 10. And you're almost 11? Yeah. Then what do you want to learn about money? Kind of just how to make it. <laughs> how to make it? Got it. Um. What do you guys know about taxes? That they're bad. Well, they're good, but... But you have to pay the government the money. I can't see. And if Bernie Sanders gets elected, they'll be raised. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. All right, girls. Well, thank you for being on episode number 200. We'll have you back in another 100 episodes, okay? That's like a year. That's probably like two. All right. Well, thanks for humoring me there for a minute. Had the uh, girls on the show. but I felt like I had to do something special. It's episode 200, which, uh, man, that is a lot of shows, right? Uh, that kind of flew by, especially the last 100 shows where I think Camilla, my 10-year-old, uh, was on that one. And she uh, uh, she did the introduction. But the two younger ones are now old enough at least to uh, to participate. And, and episode 300 will maybe just let them run the whole show. Uh, in the meantime, let's move on with today's show. We started, uh, you know, this idea of this show as being, um, you know, something where we would have a lot of comments, uh, you know, maybe some favorite shows, some concepts, things like that. And uh, it ended up with a lot of questions. So it'll end up being mostly like an Ask Buck show. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen, that's great, too. But that's been some of the more popular shows we've had. Um, and so let's get to it, you know, um, let's go back first of all and think about this episode, you know, this 
200 episode things. And to me, when I think about what uh, has been accomplished during that period of time, you know, I think about this quote that who knows who said it, right? I think I've heard people say, Bill Gates said this, whatever. But as it turns out, there's no clear lineage on where this came from, but it's a quote where people tend to overestimate what can be done in one year and underestimate what can be done in five or 10 years. Well, listen, I'm talking about four years here with Wealth Formula Podcast. And, uh, you know, four years, um, it's amazing where we've come, right? I mean, it's, uh, I began Wealth Formula around really in earnest around two, 2016. The first several shows that I did from, uh, you know, from Chicago suburbs, now I live in Santa Barbara, uh, no one was listening to the show. I mean, literally no one was listening to the show. Uh, there was about three or four downloads, and that was from me, uh, myself, and I uh, just trying to make sure that I was doing it right. Maybe my internet uh, person might have helped me out a little bit and made sure as well, so that was probably the fourth or fifth download. Anyway, somehow I convinced some really good people to be on the show. I didn't tell them that no one was listening. And from there, uh, the thing grew, and today... Although we're not, we certainly are not even close to the biggest podcasts out there. We get about 25,000 downloads per month, which I think is respectable. Uh, we also have a Regulation D type accredited investor group made up of, I don't know, somewhere around 1,400 individuals. I'd say probably about eight or 900 of those people are really active collectively. Now, this is kind of crazy to me because when I started this podcast, I wasn't even thinking about this as, you know, creating an investment group in this. But we have an investment group if you're interested in it. Um, it's not really part of the show per se, but you can go to uh, wealthformula.com. And if you're an accredited investor, you can sign up for the accredit for investor club. But there's about 800 individuals in there that are active. And in the, over the last 18 months, we've um, we've deployed you know, basically raised about a hundred million dollars and deployed that into really, um, you know, promising opportunities. Uh, that is, that's amazing. I mean, I, I can't even, you know, that's kind of mind boggling to me because I, I didn't think that when we started investor club, that that's what would end up happening. But what happened was that our ability, uh, to raise capital gave us a unique position at the table where, uh, we were able to partner with some of the best operators in the country. And, you know, some of the operators that we work with work with, you know, some uh, others, but, um, you know, we, we get to sort of cherry pick some of these opportunities um, that I get to underwrite everything and, and pick things out. And, and because of the gravitas that we have in the group, it gives us a big advantage. But beyond the whole accredited investor thing and all that, uh, more important than that, we've created I think a truly unique community of really smart, successful individuals of like mind. And that has been really, really powerful. It's been, uh, has made a big impact on my life. And I think, uh, you know, I think a number of you, especially those of you who are in our private community, Wealth Formula Network, um, probably feel the same way. People who come to these events, like the one we have coming up in Phoenix, um, April 24th and 25th, 
I mean, when you come to that, you can really feel it, the palpable feeling of something different, something real, uh, and something unique. Um, by the way, if you have not signed up, uh, we're filling, we're getting filled up there. So check it out, wealthformulaevents.com. We'd love to see you out there. We've got a great lineup. And as always, we have a really good time uh, at those event, at that those types of events. Now, um, you know, it's funny, though, when, when people ask me how, uh, you know, how I built a wealth formula brand, you know, the, the, the real answer there is fundamentally it comes down to persistence. Yeah, I have a message, I have a mission, and I'm, you know, I'm there every week. We've had a show every week for the last four years. Um, that's what really matters, though, right? It's persistence. And I go to work every week, we do something, we put out the same material, Um what that goes to show is that if you really, if you put your mind to something and plug away at it long enough, you have a pretty good chance to succeed. The problem is that most people have, uh, most people just, you know, they can't get past the hurdle of not having initial success. And so then they quit too early, right? It's really hard to see five downloads on your podcast knowing they're all yours and then keep going on to the next one. I mean, but then again, listen. It's just like it's it's hard to build a business from something as well. I mean, the lesson that I need to learn from this is that I can't go, you know, lift weights for a month and then quit because I'm not seeing anything. I mean, listen, it's it's like everything else, right? You just you incrementally incrementally get better, bigger, stronger, whatever. But it's all about persistence, and that is definitely um, the number one ingredient to what's made this all work. Success in all forms really ultimately comes from a series of small victories, and they accumulate over time, and then the next thing you know, you look four years later, and you're like, wow, that's great. And like I said, it's true whether it's podcasting, an exercise regimen, a new language, whatever. The key I found for me in this whole thing, uh, being a being a being an entrepreneur, is I have a tendency uh, to chase shiny objects, and um, really not doing that has been a tremendous advantage uh, to me when it comes to not only this podcast but investing and trying to keep disciplined. And you know, and having an investor group, by the way, has created a lot of discipline for me because now it's not just me, right? Now it's like trying to really be analytical and trying to be a fiduciary for people who, you know, who are, um, who are taking some of the things I say seriously. And, um, you know, I, I want to make sure that I do put my, my best foot forward. Um, anyway, seeing the, you know, what's happened with the podcast and everything, uh, has really made me a big believer in this concept. And again, you know, go back and in your own life, it might be a nice thing to take a minute and think about how, you know, if there's things that you're trying to accomplish or whatever, you know, have you really put in enough persistence? I mean, could you just do, you know, that hour a day, two hours a day for a couple of years and where are you going to get with that thing that you've been wanting to do, right? So think about that. And in the meantime, uh, we will take a little bit of break and then after we come back, we will dive into Episode 200 of Wealth Formula Podcast.
Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Yes, this is episode 200 or about 200, I guess is what you could say. You know, last week we actually were going to do 200, but for a variety of reasons, uh, we did not do that. One was that I was at this um, um, family office club meeting, and uh, and so I kind of ran out of time. I got back on Thursday from San Francisco. And I just said Friday, and well, I didn't want to throw it together at the last minute. The second thing was that, man, I just got this cold, and it will, um, the cold is gone, all right, but I'm like, but it got into my lungs, and so, like, uh, you know, for like three weeks now, I've had this had this issue, uh, maybe two. It feels like three though, and I, uh, I, I still am having trouble with my voice. I'm still kind of coughing stuff up, and it's kind of gross. And I didn't want to subject to you that uh, last week, but you know, I think I'm well. I'm almost there, so I'm going to go ahead with this. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this, but it really hit me when uh, my wife and I we were went we went to Vegas. Uh, it was like a birthday present, and uh, she got me this thing to drive Ferraris really fast. And so I was going like 145 miles per hour in a Ferrari uh, uh, GT. I think it's a GTB GTB. Uh, and it was, uh, it was funny because like for a second, my cold went away while I was driving super fast and you know, all the, uh, the adrenaline kicked in and I was like, I don't have a cold anymore when I got out of the car. And then an hour later it hit me, uh, like a rock at any rate. Uh, I think that is a good lead in to sort of, okay. So this is, um, you know, this is, was supposed to be, you know, a more 
comments and you know reflection on the uh, 200 episodes but it ended up being really like a lot of questions so we'll just treat it as it is and that's fine too because I know the Ask Buck episodes, I've gotten a lot of very positive feedback on that. So we'll kind of go in that direction and throw in a few comments that we've gotten along the way as well. One of the questions that no one specifically asked uh, via uh, audio or any write, uh, anybody wrote back, but a lot of people have been asking me about is this whole you know coronavirus, this novel coronavirus thing, and, um, well, why would they ask me about it? You may know, or maybe you don't. Maybe you're a recent listener, but I, I am uh, a physician. You know, despite the fact that my focus uh, is personal finance now, I do hold a medical degree and was, uh, up until about, I don't know, about three years ago, a practicing board-certified surgeon, uh, and, uh, well, I don't do that anymore, but I still, you know, spend the better, uh, part of what, I don't know, a couple decades here just in school. So I learned a thing or two and I was a pretty good student. So I'll put my doctor hat on for a minute in terms of addressing this thing, coronavirus, otherwise known as novel coronavirus, uh, and, tell you kind of what I'm thinking because it certainly has piqued my interest in terms of trying to understand what the heck this whole thing is all about. Now, the big fear that um, is surrounding this thing is really related sort of to the unknown, right? And you see in China, you know, they're they're walking around in hazmat suits and they quarantine off this whole city and you're like, what the heck is going on? Uh, it sounds like a really big deal. And I'm not saying it's not a big deal. Um, in fact, if you look at uh, if you look at what's been reported, uh, you know, mortality rates on this have been re- reported uh, up to two uh, percent. And if that's correct, that's really high, right? For reference, influenza is reported at zero point one percent. So. This would be theoretically 20 times uh, is, uh, you know, is, is fatal to people who get it. And that sounds scary for sure, right? It sounds scary. However, I have to say that I don't know that I really believe that that 2% number is real at all, okay? Because the reality is what we know now from the people writing papers about this and the doctors that I'm hearing uh, report on this in the CDC is that most people who get infected with coronavirus, uh, novel coronavirus, um, will either be asymptomatic carriers or experience mild symptoms uh, that they would frankly never report, right? I mean, if you got a little cold, you're not going to report that. You probably don't even know it. Whereas with influenza, make no mistake, I've had influenza a couple times. Uh, you know when you got influenza, when you got the flu, it hits you like a Mack truck. There is very little ambiguity with the flu. And you're not just going to be like, oh, I have a little cold. I'm just going to go to work. And the next thing you, you know, you infect people with influenza. That's not the way it works usually. You're, you're, you got body aches. You're feeling horrendous. Um, and that's like healthy people. And that's healthy people who get this and, and they have those, um, those kinds of symptoms. In other words, the point is that with novel coronavirus, you can be walking around and have no clue you have it. 
you may barely be symptomatic at all. You may just be running around thinking, I got a little cold today. I'm going to go to work anyway. Right? So if that's the case, how in the world do you get that 2%? Right? That 2%. Because you don't know how many people actually have it. So the bottom line is that I would not be surprised that if this was, you know, this 2% was tenfold off. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe it's still as lethal as the flu, but I would have a hard time believing it's 2% if there's so many people walking around that are asymptomatic. Now, again, uh, I don't, uh, I'm not saying that this is not a big deal. Um, and I'll also say that what I pretty much guarantee is that over the next few weeks, you will see a number of these uh, novel coronavirus cases in the U.S. skyrocket in terms of what we know, in terms of the number of cases we know. But I think that's because we're going to start screening this, which we really haven't been doing up to now. And there's going to be a lot of people who have it who are not all that symptomatic. So bottom line is, where does that leave us? Well, paradoxically, the fact that most people do not have significant symptoms makes this disease probably even harder to control. Think about how many people go to work when they have a cold, right? Let's go back to that. And that's what most people with novel coronavirus will experience. They're going to think they have a cold. The problem is that for vulnerable populations, this can this thing that comes off as a cold or maybe doesn't come off as anything uh, can be deadly. So you have like you know a, a you know a, somebody a septuagenarian octogenarian who's got you know an underlying health condition, autoimmune disease, uh, you know COPD, uh, all this stuff. It can be downright deadly for that person. So uh, that is what's really really tricky. So although I think that the risk of most healthy individuals dying from novel coronavirus um, is exceedingly low, right? And the nice thing is that we're, it's apparently not affecting children very much either. Uh, flu does. Um, it, does n it does have the potential, nevertheless, to be pretty disruptive to us because of the fact that it usually isn't a problem for people. I mean, after all, how do you stop the spread of a disease that barely affects most people, but is just as contagious as the flu and can kill susceptible populations? There's really only one way to do that. And that is you make them stay at home. You make people stay at home. And in that regard, I wouldn't be surprised at all. If you see pockets of the U.S., uh, with school closures, quarantines, etc. Uh, so maybe it does make sense to, you know, get some, make sure if you have prescription medication that you get an extra, you know, 30 day supply. If, you know, maybe it's not a bad idea to have some food sitting around, you know, some canned stuff just in case that everybody closes stuff down for a week or two, just so that, um, you know, everybody just stays away from each other. You know, the thing is that, as you can imagine, this can this scenario can be very, very disruptive to business. And that's why the stock market got absolutely crushed last week. Now, I don't know what's going to happen by the time you hear this, but it got crushed. Uh, it crushed the last week of uh, February. And it's because um, of all the anticipation of business 
problems and the problems related to um, supply chains, et cetera. And a lot of it's anticipation still. I should point out, by the way, that this is uh, what we saw last week is another good reason why you should seriously be thinking about, you know, being in in uh, cash flowing apartment buildings, right? I mean, shoot, coronavirus, people are going to stay home. They need to stay home for sure. Now they can definitely pay you their rent if they 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 uh, uh, you know. So so these kinds of things don't hurt us uh, in the short term, like the volatility in the stock markets do uh, react to this kind of thing. Um, Anyway, the bottom line is that the coronavirus may end up being a bigger problem in the short term than many of us, um, including myself, thought initially. But the health implications may actually be the least dramatic of its effects because, again, you know, if you're otherwise healthy, this is, you know, exceedingly low chance of anything significant happening to you. Uh, But from you know, from a business perspective, I mean, and slowing things down and, you know, stock market corrections, well, this could be an extra push into something that's potentially been uh, long overdue anyway. Now, the good news uh, on this uh, is that spring is is almost here and summer's around the corner. So we'll probably have some kind of uh, let up from that because usually cold, dry air is the thing that these kinds of viruses love, but we don't know that for sure but usually different kinds of coronaviruses. By the way, coronavirus itself is very, you know, that word coronavirus, this is new, this is not new, right? Like in for, for colds, I learned in medical school, rhinovirus and coronavirus, right? Those are, that's what I learned. So this is a special strain of coronavirus is why they're calling it the novel coronavirus. Um, anyway, um, so, but that, that being said, if it behaves like other coronaviruses, um, it'll probably really, you know, uh, calm down uh, as the weather warms up and it gets a little bit more humid. Um, and, you know, worst case scenario, I think there's reason to believe uh, that, uh, you know, we'll have a vaccination quicker than we ordinarily would, but even though that might take a year. But uh, who knows? I mean, they can speed that stuff up a little bit too. So bottom line is there's reason to believe that we can be optimistic that this is a bump in the road uh, for what could be another Roaring Twenties to follow. So uh, that's that. Let's go to our first recording. Hey, Buck, Jerry here. I just wanted to let you know how grateful I am, as well as my family, for being part of the Wealth Formula Tribe. It's truly been instrumental in my financial education And uh, I would not be in the position that I'm in today without your help uh, coming from your guests, coming from our tribe, our biweekly calls. It has been truly outstanding, and I highly recommend it to anyone uh, who's interested in um, improving their lives, both uh, professionally as well as personally. Uh, The meetups that we have, the one that I went to last year was fantastic to be able to meet uh, like-minded people who think the same way, and uh, this couldn't have been possible without you. So thank you very much, and I uh, look forward to uh, the many more years to come. Thanks. Well, Jerry, that is very kind of you to say. Jerry, of course, uh, is known to many of you. In fact, he was on an episode of what we call the Real Investors of Wealth Formula Nation uh, some time ago. Uh, he is, uh, in many ways, uh, the 
a, a Wealth Formula poster boy. He's a member of Wealth Formula Network, as he alluded to, which is our private uh, community, which you could join at wealthformularoadmap.com. He's in our uh, Wealth Formula Investor Accredited Investor Group, which you can join uh, at wealthformula.com, and uh, is an active investor there. Uh, he does a lot of what we talk about, and it's good to know when people are doing that, they are finding that it actually moves the dial um, in their personal financial success. So I should point out, um, by the way, that Jerry had pointed out the uh, the live event. We have one coming up April 24th and 25th in Phoenix. Uh, go to wealthformulaevents.com. Uh, that uh, is getting close to sold out, so get there sooner rather than later. Going to be have some really good uh, speakers there. Uh, Tom Wheelwright will be there. Kenny McElroy, uh, Rich Dad Real Estate Advisor, of course you know him. And uh, I think we've got Richard Wilson. we got uh, some familiar names other than that too. Um, so anyway, you can go check that out, wealthformulaevents.com. Uh, Jerry, thanks again for that nice comment. So we have a question here, which I'm going to read. The next one is from Ethan Wright. Here's the question. Ethan says, uh, Bernie Sanders has been discussing federal rent control and combating gentrification and speculation. Could you discuss the implications of this for investments such as Western wealth capital? Thanks. Well, uh, Thanks for the question, Ethan. Ethan's referring to one of our investor club uh, operator partners, uh, Western Wealth Capital. Um, and if you're not familiar with that, you can go back to episode 195, where I um, where I interviewed Tim McCleary from Western Wealth Capital. We also uh, earlier, I think maybe a year ago or so, interviewed Janet LePage, who's the principal and founder as well. Ethan's question um, is a good one because it's sort of, you know, Western Wealth Capital is the mother of all value add operators in, in the multifamily space. You know, they are, that's what they do and they're a machine and they've gotten their investors, you know, an average of 30% annualized returns, um, you know, over, over, you know, uh, 32 divestments. It's just an incredible track record. But listen, it would be, uh, not a good situation, of course, uh, if uh, if uh, Bernie Sanders' rent control issues uh, came to fruition, right? Because the whole idea behind that business model is to increase net operating income by ultimately, you know, giving uh, tenants a reason to pay more rent and decreasing expenses. Um, you know, if that were to happen, we would almost certainly need to adapt our business model to get better yield. But you know what? Here's the thing, because I know there's a lot of, and, and believe me, I'm, I'm Bernie. I don't like Bernie Sanders at all. It drives me crazy. Uh, that said, I don't think Bernie Sanders, frankly, is electable. I really don't believe he is, because any moderate who's thinking about voting for a Democrat um, in 2020, even a lot of uh, Republicans who really don't like Donald Trump, uh, who really are looking for a change. There's a lot of those, um, a lot of those moderate uh, Republicans who are, are potentially looking for another candidate. Um, they are just not going to vote for a socialist. They're not going to do it. So they may not be able to even get to, you know, stomach voting for Donald Trump, but they're not going to vote for Bernie Sanders. They're going to probably just stay, end up staying home in that situation. So, you know, 
there's just too many people are, who are too rational uh, fundamentally to alter, you know, to, to, to go in and alter the most productive economy in the history of the world. I mean, that's just nuts, right? Um, and and I'm I'm telling you, I, I'm you know I, I know plenty of people on on the Democrat side. Uh, I happen to be uh, you know conservative, but I, I'm not a big Trump guy, as you you you've probably heard me say before. But man, if that's the choice, it's not going to be hard for for people because ultimately, people uh, are not going to want to pay uh, pay uh, that kind of. Uh, price like you know that literally that kind of money for those kinds of ridiculous socialist agendas and now here's the other thing okay maybe i'm wrong okay maybe i'm wrong maybe he does get elected right so if he does he can't single-handedly put into uh, place a socialist agenda without the support of other branches of the government like you know the congress right he he can't you know there's just too much sanity left in our system to ever let this type of agenda, um, you know, go through. And just imagine the lobbyists on their real estate side too. Bottom line is, in the near, you know, in the next few years at least, in my opinion, even if Bernie Sanders gets elected, that kind of rent control stuff ain't going to happen anytime soon. Uh, that said, you know, uh, it's a good thing to always make money when there's a clear window like there is now. And I think, you know, if you think something like this is going to happen, invest now because anything of that magnitude would take years to get through if it, if it even, even did, which I just don't think there's a real risk of. All right. Um, next questions from, uh, Ravindra Tamaskar. He asks, how is return of investment treated for tax purposes versus return on investment? Okay, so let's go back to Western Wealth Capital and that model uh, just as an example. Here's how uh, they model this out. So say you put $100,000 in a deal. Their pro forma typically is going to show in the first 18 to 24 months, you get about 50% of your cash back through a, a type of refinancing um, um, strategy. So... A refi is not taxed. It's your money, right? So that is tax-free. You get that money back. Then you get another refi uh, in that model in another 18, 24 months, and that's not taxed either, right? Because again, that's your money, right? Just because you've created equity uh, out of it, um, you know, your your initial principle is not taxed. So in its re- return of capital is not taxed. So in theory, um, once you get the 100% back, you now have equity in the deal without having any money in the deal. That's why we call it, you know, an infinite returns model. Now, any cash flow you get from the deal is almost certainly going to be offset by depreciation as well. So the taxes you pay and on these kinds of deals in real estate, because I assume you're talking about real estate when you talk about return on capital. Uh, really the taxes you're going to pay really all are at exit, uh, at divestment, because that's when you'll, you know, you're, you stand to pay long-term capital gains and, um, potentially some kind of recapture on any depreciation that you took. Now, this is important because people don't understand what I mean when I say recapture. So I'm going to take that, uh, a lot of people don't understand that. So I'm going to take a moment 
here and back up on that. So basically, if you took depreciation during the hold period, right, say at the beginning, and you offset it against other passive income or whatever, you're going to need to pay some tax uh, on exit when you unravel that initial investment because that depreciation is being, well, it's being um, recaptured, right? The IRS is saying, well, we gave you an opportunity to depreciate this, but you're selling it at a gain. So obviously the asset did not depreciate. So we want, you know, some, we want to recapture some of that tax money. So if you have to pay recapture, is that the end of the world? Is that a useless thing that you did in the first place? No, not at all. You see, first of all, if you took depreciation up front, you got a tax write-off on ordinary income. So for most of you accredited investors who are doing that kind of thing, you took that write-off against, you know, 37% of federal tax bracket, right? Now here's the catch. When you recapture, recapture has a its own tax rate, and it's 25%. So even if you did nothing and just went ahead and paid that recapture, you're still coming out ahead because you're paying 25% on that income rather than 37%, right? So that's that's one thing. However, let me go back to the strategy that I have touched on before several times and I think is one that is critically important if you're a passive in investor, and that's the one I call the golden hamster wheel. So now, Let's say that you invested in four or five real estate syndications or more, and then for each one, you have received you know, some depreciation. Uh, you know, For most high-paid professionals who do this, you're going to end up with a lot more depreciation losses than you can actually use. After all, unless you are a real estate professional, the only income that you can offset with those passive depreciation losses are against passive gains. Okay, if you are not with me, go back and listen to that. Push that little rewind 15 second thing. Now, most people have a lot more passive losses than passive income, right? So you are, when you're continuously buying into these properties or investing into these properties, you are effectively building up losses that you're not using. Now, every time there's a divestment you and you have capital gains and recapture, you can offset those gains by losses that you have accumulated in other investments, right? So basically, every time you invest in more real estate, uh, you replenish your supply of losses, and then you use that for the next divestment. So in effect, that creates this uh, thing that we call the golden hamster wheel. It's something that you can sort of keep doing in perpetuity. And it is a hamster wheel, yes, but it's a good hamster wheel. And I and I need to give credit to uh, one of our investors, uh, Tim. I won't use his last name, but he's an orthopedic surgeon in Indiana who coined it the good hamster wheel. I'm going to call it the golden hamster wheel because I like to make things colorful that way. Um, anyway, he uses this uh, strategy beautifully. Um, and um, you know what? That is, that's, that's how we do it. Right. That's that's the that's the beauty of this whole thing. Again, if you don't understand it, rewind it and listen to it. It is critical to, you know, this whole uh, passive investing uh, strategy. Now, one more layer I'm going to add here because I just talked to someone 
who said they had a uh, $500,000 of passive income from, uh, you know, some, some, uh, some surgery centers and other stuff like that. And the question was, can real estate depreciation losses be written off against that kind of passive income? Well, I'm not a CPA, but if your CPA says no, do me a favor and talk to another CPA because we have people in our group who are using this technique to offset millions of dollars of income, right? They are, you know, they're making a lot of money through some sort of passive source and they are taking those, you know, millions of dollars and they're investing into real estate and literally taking off those huge bonus depreciation losses against that income. Um, you invest in, you know, you invest in real estate with bonus depreciation, get losses on K-1s that are 60 to 90% of what you invested, then take those losses, apply them to your other passive income. The other passive income, again, can be surgery centers, infusion centers, um, obviously real estate's the obvious one, but a lot of the ones people don't think of. Now, I have to tell you, this is an important thing. If this sounds like it could be something that you qualify for, make sure that you really push your CPA on it. Because, you know, I'm not talking about, okay, you got a K-1 because your, you know, your practice uh, did a distribution at the end of the year as a bonus on top of your, you know, that that doesn't count. That's still going to be active income. But in a lot of these cases, there is passive income. Like you own an infusion center, you own a dialysis center, you own, you know, whatever. Um, and according to my CPA, who you may know is uh, Tom Wheelwright, he's a smart guy. This is not only something that you can do, you know, because a lot of people are like, I don't know, that doesn't sound legal. But Tom will tell you it's something that you should do because it's reporting your taxes accurately. And reporting your taxes accurately includes putting the income sources in the right basket. So if you're reporting something as passive income, um, that you know that's not passive income, that's not good. But if you're reporting something that's active income that should be passive, that's not appropriate either. So anyway, bottom line is that some of you, and I know a couple of you even in the last year, have situations where you are paying um, active income on something that should be passive that could give you an opportunity that you didn't even know about. So if that's you, don't let your CPA have the hook. Okay, next um, next recording here is from John Harrison. Here you go. Let's play this. Hey, Buck. It's John Harrison here. Uh, happy 200th. Uh, I couldn't uh, help but take the opportunity to uh, uh, pipe in here with you uh, uh, because I love your podcast. be very hard to um, uh, pick a favorite out. Um, uh, I know recently the one you had with Russell Gray was uh, was really uh, a tough subject, yet uh, that's what you do. You, uh, you bring tough subjects, uh, and even though you're pretty set in your ways as to uh, what you invest in, uh, you bring a variety to all of us. So thank you for all of that. Uh, my question is this. You had a gentleman uh, on a podcast uh, back in the uh, late fall, I believe, and he was talking about uh, uh, buying 25% of the equity um, 
that you have either in uh, uh, your home or, or um, uh, uh, in other assets. And I uh, remember going to his website and it seemed that uh, all you could do was uh, they were looking for people to invest uh, in their fund as opposed to actually coming out and maybe appraising your home and uh, uh, the like. So uh, if there was some information that uh, you could get out to me as to uh, how to contact them so they could uh, um, appraise some properties that I have and see if I can uh, uh, see if that's a value, um, I deeply appreciate it. Again, happy 200th buck, and thank you for all you do, buddy. Thank you very much, John. John is uh, John is a great guy, again, a very active member of our group and uh, comes to our uh, events. Uh, you should come to the next event to meet John, wealthformulaevents.com. Now, thanks, John. I, by the way, I uh, as you know, I've already sent you um, an introduction back to Matthew Sullivan. He was a guy I interviewed back in episode 141, and the concept that we learned from Matthew was uh, that of something called home equity contracts, which I believe actually a number of companies are now doing. So uh, just as a review, basically the concept is that instead of taking a loan on your home equity, um, such as in the case of a home equity line of credit, a home equity contract actually allows you to sell equity in your home or, you know, potentially in a rental home. Why would you do that? Well, the idea here is, well, let's say you own a rental, right? So in theory, you would still collect the same rent, but instead of having a mortgage, you might sell part of the equity in the house and that would create more cash flow. The downside, of course, would be that once you actually sell the property, you would have to share in the profits uh, however, that also protects you, right? Because if you sell it and say you don't have a lot of appreciation, well, then you came out ahead. Um, similarly, you could just live in a home without payments uh, or having a lot lower payments potentially, but eventually would have to sell the home and again, share the profits. And I think most of these contracts, I think uh, the limit is like 30 years. So it has to be a place that you plan on leaving eventually. Uh, is this a good thing? The answer is, I don't know. I have no idea. As John suggested, sometimes I put things out there um, to, you know, just give people ideas on stuff. I haven't crunched the numbers on this. Uh, and frankly, it hasn't been anything on my radar really um, because, you know, I'm not really, uh, well, it's just not. Uh, but certainly listen to the podcast like John has um, so that at least you know that the option's out there. Um, that's what we want to do, right? We just want to keep arming ourselves with knowledge so that we can become uh, personal finance ninjas. And um, I should point out that I don't know if if Matthew Sullivan, um, his option, exactly what it is. Uh, but um, but I also know that there's also a number of companies doing that now. So, um, you know, I know when Matthew was on, his company was only doing it on the West Coast and really like, you know, uh, high-end um, um, places that appreciate a lot. But uh, there was somebody mentioning this concept even at the um, at the family office club meeting that I went to. So it's clearly something that's pretty common now. And so if it piques your interest at all, I would, uh, I would also, in addition to listening to that um, podcast, go ahead and Google home equity contracts. Okay, let's see. Let's do one more question here. Um, as I suspected, we're probably going to 
Uh, we're going to need to do a part two to this, which is fine. Don't want to over inundate you with too much knowledge in one day and have your head explode. So let's see. Um, Hi, this is Kevin Hoover. Hey, Buck, I've been listening to your program for about half a year already, and I really enjoy it, and the information seems sound. I have a limited means and have for about I have about two hundred thousand a year to put towards this type of investment. And early on, I was thinking of doing one large one per year, but the divestment side brings the income back in such large lumps, and you can't control it. And then I like your idea of doing multiple small ones every year. I was wondering how how far you'd break apart a $200,000 investment per year and how many K1s are you good with in a year? Thank you. Thanks for that question, Kevin. Um, now, I actually went to lunch with a friend the, uh, the other day who asked me a related question. And so I think what I'll do is try to combine both of them. And I'm going to take a step back and kind of hit it a little bit broader than what you asked me. So his question to me, my friend, uh, was that if he was going to invest $2 million, uh, say this year, uh, did he think it was better for him to invest in a building that he owns himself or to invest that money as a limited partner in multiple deals? So a little background on my friend. He's a local doctor but he's also turned himself into a pretty darn good real estate guy. And that's important because if he was just a doctor who had zero experience in managing property, I would tell him you're nuts to even consider investing that $2 million into a property because you're going to lose it or you're just going to hate life. So in a heartbeat, I would tell him that that's the answer. But his case is a little bit more uh, complicated because he's had a lot of success before you know, and um, but here's how I see it. First of all, when you have buildings on your own, uh, they are not passive, right? Listen, you can get a property manager for sure, but I can tell you from experience that the responsibility of the property's performance will land squarely on your shoulders, right? So anybody who has gone down this road of buying apartment buildings, et cetera, knows, you know, if you really want to do well in these things, it's not it's it's not really that passive. So if you're going to buy a building on your own, you are you need to be understanding that what you're doing is really is buying a little business for yourself. It lives and dies with the way you run it. And if you have a ton of confidence in yourself, then great. Maybe you will be able to squeeze a little bit more yield out of it than if you invest passively. But how much more is the question? And is the extra time worth the effort, right? Is it, is it, are you going to get a return on investment on that? That's the part that people don't think about, right? If you have your own buildings and you're working a bunch on it, are you calculating in what your, like the amount that you should be paid per hour is in order for that kind of, uh, in, in order for you to do that kind of activity? And what kind of you know hourly rate do you normally have? Are you meeting that when you have properties on your own? If not, then maybe you are better off actually being a um, you know being a passive investor because you have to calculate that, right? These are two different things. One is being 
a business owner. One is being a true investor, a passive investor. Now, um, you know, listen, here's the other thing. Most of our passive uh, investment pro formas, at least in our accredited investor club, are, you know, at least you know, they're about 20% or better. And, and as we talked about, you know, there's Western wealth capital that's delivering, um, typically they're averaging 30% on the divestment so far. That's not to say that's what they're going to do forever, but that's their track record. That's just a fact. So when you do things on your own, how much better can you actually do? That's the thing that you have to ask. And then if you can do better, how much better and how much is your time worth to you? And did you factor that in on the return on investment? Now, the next issue to consider uh, for buying your own building, say in your case, $200,000 or, you know, in one, in one opportunity or say you're, you know, in my friend's case, $2 million versus investing in a series of limited partnerships. So the next question really has to do with the risk of all that money being in one asset. So in your this applies to your question too, which is, should I put that $200,000 into one asset? So going back to my friend, he lives in LA. This is not going to buy him more than 20 units, even with, you know, 2 million bucks. And what if something out of his control happens and makes the property not perform? With a $2 million uh, to invest at $100,000 per shot, I mean, he could be exposed. He could he could create an exposure to you know four thousand plus doors across the country in different individual uh, assets and markets in the hands of really highly skilled operators with incredible track records and not have any stress. Right? He could benefit from cash flow, but also uh, value add refinances and investments, just like you know we want to. Um, but you don't have to do anything, right? That you're completely passive. So um, while I'm not saying that there is a right or wrong question here, uh, right or wrong answer here, that it is important to understand all the involved variables because at the end of the day, uh, most people just ignore the extra work and risk that they're putting in to get potentially higher returns, which in many cases are not higher returns anyway. Now, in terms of your specific question, again, what do you do with that $200,000 per year? Again, I'm not going to give you investment advice, but I will say this, that I would, if I were you, uh, try to get exposure to as many different deals as possible. The number of K-1s in your case will be limited because most of the time it's really hard to invest less than $50,000 in a given private opportunity. So you might be doing, say, four year, you know, four deals a year. And frankly, for me, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, you know, less than 50,000 seems, well, you know, you need to factor in the cost of filing your K-1s with your accountant uh, if, if you do that, which might also be a reason to keep your investments a little bit higher, but, um, you know, at the $50,000 level. But that's what I would do uh, if I were you, is I would probably spread that out you know, over four investments of $50,000. On the other hand, um, you know, if I'm a guy deploying a million dollars or more in a year, I wouldn't think twice about having uh, 10K1s in a year. I mean, the extra accounting effort, you know, at that point uh, is definitely worth the price of diversity uh, in, in in a portfolio, in my opinion. So, and, and you know, all that is, uh, all that, you have to factor all that in. 
But um, hopefully that answers your question. Again, I'm not, I can't really give you individual investment advice, but if I were you, I'd spread it out. Well, listen, um, that is, I'm going to stop there because we still have a bunch of questions and I've already been talking, I don't know, for 40 minutes uh, just on this uh, part of the, the body here of the Ask Buck slash episode 200 here. Um, but uh, so that's all I've got uh, this week for you. Uh, let's take a break and we come right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I want to take this moment again to thank you all for listening. Uh, I'm really hoping that I'll get a chance to meet more of you in April at our upcoming uh, meetup in Phoenix. Again, go to Wealth Formula Events. Uh, dot com and check that out. We've got a lot of really good, uh, really good speakers. Of course, we've got Ken McElroy, Rich Dad uh, Advisor, Ken McElroy, and Tom Wheelwright, uh, CPA to Robert Kiyosaki. He's also my CPA, but more impressive that he's Robert Kiyosaki CPA. Doug Lodmel, Richard Wilson. We've got the whole Western Wealth crew. We're going to do a we're going to do a field trip around a bunch of the properties that we own through Investor Club uh, in in the Phoenix area. Uh, even if you you know you're not involved with that at all, it is an extraordinary educational experience when you see value add real estate and driving equity into things. Check that out. Um, hopefully, my wife is going to come. I mean, Olivia was supposed to come, but our nanny quit on us. So we need to figure things out. We may end up bringing the whole family. Uh, we, I may just have to go on my own. Maybe we'll get a new nanny, but I've got at least a month, a month, almost two months to figure that one out. Um, <clears throat> now I should point out we have another episode uh, next week that'll finish off our questions because uh, we only really got halfway through. Um, if you want to participate in a future aspect, show, go to wealthformula.com and click the leave buck a message uh, icon and and leave me a message. It's always nice to have uh, some questions that come on. Also, I have a huge favor to ask. While you are there at wealthformula.com, click on the leave us a review on iTunes link and give us a five-star review. If you have benefited from this show in any sort of way in the last four years, if it is, if it has made an impact in your life, that's the only favor I'm going to ask. And the reason is that that this is really what strengthens our ability uh, for rankings and also allows us to get better guests. Um, I remember we were trying to get Grant Cardone on the show. Um, he looked at the number of positive re reviews that we had and was very impressed. And that's one of the things that he looked at. So, you know, that kind of stuff is really valuable. And then, you know, it's nice to balance out. I mean, listen, we have an average five-star review, but sometimes we get some, I don't know, some weird comments, right? Like I get this one where the guy's saying that there was there were many doctors who need to, quote unquote, live like a resident. And then he says that, um, lo uh, you know, that we shouldn't be buying Ferraris, as Buck says, should be okay. You've clearly not listened to my message at all if you're saying that kind of thing. But, you know, the guy leaves me a one-star um, review and says that I'm telling everybody to buy Ferraris. Yeah, 
That's exactly what I'm doing, buddy. Anyway, uh, if that kind of stuff uh, irritates me, I'm sorry, but do me a favor. Uh, let's uh, let's put on some positive stuff too, because the thing with reviews is, and I don't know about you, but I'm much more likely, unfortunately, to give a bad review to a restaurant on Yelp than I am a good, because I'm all worked up about it. But I consciously think about when I'm having a good experience, and I say, you know what? I'm going to pay it back. I'm going to go leave a review. So if you can do that, it's great. Anyway, I'll see you back next week. Um, and I think we'll do the other half of this uh, episode 200. Maybe that'll be episode 200.5. That's it for me this week, though. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com.